Hey friends, welcome. I am Kathy Baker and I'd love to have you join us today for our next lesson in my series, The Healing Miracles of Jesus Then and Now. And today I'm going to focus on Jesus healing a woman's demon, demonized daughter. Wow, that is something hard to deal with, isn't it? Our story is about this mother's desperate, persistent pursuit of healing for her demonized daughter. Can you imagine? Knowing your daughter is dealing with demons and you are helpless. Can you imagine? Well, yes, I can. Uh, last year when my one-year-old grandson uh, went, went to the ER after having a febrile seizure, and, and he's okay now, I saw a friend of mine uh, who shared that her teenage daughter was there because she had attempted suicide. And it wasn't the first attempt. She was in desperate need for help for her daughter. And I'll call the daughter Shana. I began to pray for them, and I put that family on my daily prayer list. And we have continued the dialogue and, and the prayer partnership. Shana ended up going out of state to a treatment center, and, and she did fairly well until the fall um, when she made another attempt. Well, my friend frantically was looking for help, and she asked me if I knew of a minister who casts out evil. Yes, I did. I referred her to Dr. Dan Pinckney at Sozo Healing Ministry. Shana was not ready to participate herself, and we agreed to pray for her heart to be open so her mind could be healed. But my friend had two sessions with Dan. Dan talked to her about her own issues of control and her own issues of depression and her own past abuse. And she came to realize that she was in need. She needed to sort through her past. She needed to figure out a way to cope with what was happening with her daughter. And she was in desperate need to forgive others. Forgiveness was the key. And Dan helped her sort through uh, many issues in her past and help, helped her to realize that she uh, could heal if she could forgive. And so she sorted through the past and she forgave. She came away renewed and better able to help Shana. And she went home and we uh, covenanted to pray and to continue our prayer support for Shana. And two weeks later, I received this message from my friend. Kathy, I just want to sing God's praises. My girl is healing. Sozo was a, Sozo was a life changer, and God is handling those demons. I cannot thank you enough. My friend's story reminds me of the miracle story of healing that we're focusing on today. Let us dig in. Well, it's found in two passages of Scripture. The first one is in Matthew 15, and the other is in Mark 7. Jesus was traveling in the Gentile territory, and Gentile means non-Jew, when a woman approached him and begged him to cure her little daughter, who was troubled in her mind. Well, this woman in our story came from the area called Tyre and Sidon. That's north of Galilee. And these were notoriously ungodly cities. 
The people who lived there were Gentiles, non-Jews, and many Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. That's important to remember that that was a cultural term that was used uh, for the Gentiles. Mark, uh, in his passage, refers to her as Greek, and that would have meant pagan. So I hope you're getting the picture. She was considered by the Jews as a pagan, as a dog. And so let's look in at the story. We're reading from Mark chapter 7, and let's begin with verse 24. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it secret. See, Jesus often withdrew, sometimes for rest, sometimes to let the confrontation with religious leaders settle down, and sometimes because there was a real purpose in his timing. And this time he goes to the land of the Gentiles uh, with purpose. Many Jews had rejected him, and now he is with the Gentiles in the land of Canaan. There was an ancient rivalry between the Jews and the Canaanites. Well, verse 25 tells us right away a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Now, just right there, don't you find that interesting? This Gentile, pagan, Greek woman had heard about Jesus, and she fell at his feet. Now, that is uh, an act of humility and a request for mercy. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. Well, Matthew's version says, "'My daughter is tormented by a demon.'" This woman came to Jesus because she was concerned about her daughter. The child was demon-possessed and was probably acting in violence and anger. She needed help in a desperate way. It may be that the demon was causing bodily harm to the child. You can just imagine, or can you? It's just horrifying. And she heard how Jesus had driven out demons from people in Israel. And she believed that Jesus could heal her daughter as well. And so hope is springing up. In verse 26, we read, she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. She she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia. So that's reminding us that she is doomed. She's a different race. See, she is in, it's also called Cana. And so she's a Canaanite. She's from a different religion. She's a Gentile, not a Jew. She, she, this woman, against all earthly odds, empties herself out before Jesus. She is totally dependent on him. She not only asked, but notice she begged for his help. She cried out with all of her heart. In times of her greatest need, we learn that this woman went humbly before him, and it's what we do in our greatest need. We go humbly before him and empty ourselves of anything that would be considered as self-righteous or anything that looks like hypocrisy or pride, and we go to Jesus with nothing but a request for his mercy. Here's what Matthew's version tells us. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. So Jesus seemingly ignores her. Or is he testing her faith? The disciples dismiss her. 
and they call her a bother. You see, the odds are against her, but she begs, she continues. And then Jesus responds. He told her, first, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. See, that was his plan from the beginning, to feed the Jews, convert the Jews. And then he adds this, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, do you see that implication? His comment about taking children's bread and tossing it to the dogs may seem cruel outside of the context which it was spoken. But the words children's bread refers to the old covenant promise that God made to help the children of Israel. The Jewish people who faithfully worship the living God rather than idols. And when Jesus uses the word dogs, he's not comparing the woman to a canine, but rather using the terminology that Jews used for the Gentile people of the time. They often lived in wild ways. The Jewish people who faithfully worship the living God rather than idols. See, that's what his original focus what was on. And so maybe he's testing the faith of this woman by saying something that's going to provoke an honest response from her. Well, here's what, how she replied in verse 28. That's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Wow. Listen to what she's willing to do to get her daughter healed. She's willing to take the scraps. Just give me the crumbs of your grace. Give me the crumbs of your mercy, just a little bit, just a little cup of water. Her little daughter needed to be delivered from her bondage, and this mother was persistent, humble. She needed a miracle. Look what Jesus said. Good answer. (coughs) Matthew tells us this in his version. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Notice in Mark's version, in verse 24, we learn, uh, no, it's in verse 29. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And then we have to get the rest. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed. And the demon was gone. Jesus healed her. Jesus had tested the mother's faith with hard words, and her faith had risen to the challenge. Her faith exceeded that of the people he had come to save. See, here was this Gentile, known as a dog, that had more faith than the Jewish scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests. That's a kind of faith that our Lord wants. It's what he deserves. It's a beautiful story of a mother's love, a woman willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant rejection and humiliation to save her suffering child. Her persistent faith paid off. It's interesting because Jesus, a short time later, would suffer his own rejection and humiliation in order to save us. See, the basic theme of this passage is that Christ went into Gentile territory and did this miracle for a Gentile woman who had greater faith than the Jews who were rejecting and challenging the claims of Jesus. Now, this little girl was demonized. 
imagine watching that day after day. It's one of the most frightening things that we can imagine. The the New Testament reveals a total of 14 places where demonic activity is seen. Today, I want us to take a look at how this demonic activity was affecting some of the women in Jesus' ministry. And then I want us to talk about how it manifests itself in our world today. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, now this passage tells us that there were certain women who were cursed with evil spirits and diseases. And Jesus healed them. And so what we see is this unnamed group that Jesus healed from various sicknesses or delivered from demonic powers were women who ended up supporting his ministry with their financial means. They had been cured of those diseases, those illnesses, the evil spirits. They had been healed. Now, the word healed is the Greek word therapio. Now, it's an old Greek word that where we get the word therapy. Now, think about what therapy means. It, it carries the idea of repeated actions, such as when a patient goes to a physician over and over until the desired cure is obtained. That's a therapy. You go to a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist as for therapy repeated times. And it seems to suggest that these women had been so severely demonized with evil spirits that although they were helped when they first came to Jesus, evidently they had to keep going back and back again until finally they were completely freed. It, It may have been Jesus' constant, tender, compassionate attention he gave them that caused them to have such grateful hearts that produced in them this commitment to support his ministry. But see, do you see that this was incremental, progressive healing and not an instantaneous miracle for these women? This verse also says they were healed of their infirmities. Now, infirmities is the Greek word asthenia, and it emphasizes physical frailties, weaknesses, sicknesses, or some state of ill health. Now, the word healed is the same word used for both of them. And so it's suggesting that frequent visits were made uh, to Jesus for all of them to be completely delivered from the demonic powers that had them under control. It lets us know that sometimes it takes time before a healing is completely manifested in a person's life. I've experienced that, and you'll be hearing more about that um, in another lesson. Some receive miracle deliverance and healing, and we have heard that in the story uh, last week that Rhonda shared, this, uh, those, that miracle in a surgery, and then the work after it, and all those little miracles 
that happened in her life. Some, though, received progressive healing. No wonder these women were such avid financial partners with Jesus in his ministry. They saw and experienced firsthand what he did to them to free them from demons and restore them to full health. Well, after he mentions this unnamed group of female supporters, he, he gives us some uh, other recognizable names that I want us to look at. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devil, devils. Now, the Bible has no concrete record of Mary's deliverance from these seven demons, but it does let us know that she was thankful for what Jesus had done for her. And it is the only time in the Bible that we see this number seven as seven demons who were taken from her. And that number seven is like infinite. There were many, many in her. And she remained committed to him to the very end of his ministry. Well, can Christians be demon-possessed? No. Christians, true followers of Jesus, cannot be possessed. But let's look at how Satan can influence believers. Now, see, when a Christian receives Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit enters that Christian's body, soul, and spirit. God has claimed that person for his own. And as a result, a demon cannot occupy the same place as the Holy Spirit. Now, Satan knows this. And that is why he tries so hard to get to people first and have his demons or their demonic influence have control over that person. It's a spiritual battle. So, but when the Holy Spirit has entered the new Christian, demons can certainly still try to plant thoughts or to affect the thinking process of that individual. So, I believe Satan and his demons are looking for a people that they can affect with their darts. And they look for weakness in that person. And they send those darts precisely at that point. And then this causes affliction, oppression, influence. And that is what encourages sinful behavior. My friend, Dr. Dan Pinckney with Sozo Healing Ministry, shared with me that he meets with a lot of people who are struggling with serious physical, emotional, and spiritual problems. Many feel themselves in bondage to some addiction, whether it's fear and worry and anger, or alcohol, drugs, sex, porn, overeating. Some of these feel tormented and don't know why life is just not going well for them. Now, what Dan says is there can be many reasons, but he has found that one of the most common reasons is found in the following passage. It is Matthew 18, beginning with verse 21. And it is a parable that Jesus is going to share. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So here's the story he's going to tell. 
When he had begun to settle them, one who owned him owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying this, pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But... He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord what had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Well, let's look at this story and see what we can glean. So the first slave uh, was probably a, a, like a minister of finance because his debt of 10,000 talents was really like $6 billion today. So it was insurmountable, uh, this debt that he had. And so he was graciously forgiven this impossible debt. Well, the, the fellow slave now owed this man who was forgiven about 12000 Instead of having patience and even forgiving his debt, he had him thrown in prison. Now, what we see here is that the king represents God the Father. He has the slave who was unforgiving, turned over to the torturers until he repays all that he owed. This man didn't have mercy on his fellow slave as the king had had on him. Here's what my friend Dan says. Many commentators believe, and we have truly seen in our ministry, that torturers are demons. They torture people by getting them in bondage to sins so they can't break free from them. And they afflict them emotionally or physically. They can't seem to experience the freedom and joy of the Lord. The way God sets us free from the destruction that comes from Satan and his demons is for us to repent and forgive And Dan says, we have seen so many people set free from all kinds of physical, emotional, and spiritual problems when they genuinely forgive. Now, some people may read the parable and say, oh, it's just a story. It's just an example. And we can't press every point and say it all applies to us. But here's the key. The, The point 
of the story are found in the words that Jesus says in verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's one of the most important truths that that God reveals to us on the consequences of an unforgiving spirit. When Jesus said, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you, he was referring back to the closing words of those, the parable that said, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus said God personally is going to allow those who refuse to forgive others to be tortured. So let's look at what that means. The Greek term for torturers is translated to mean to torment. Now that's a frightening thought. It, it, the same is used uh, for suffering like terrible anguish. And, and we see uh, about what Peter says about Lot. Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. That's, that's anguish that we live in. Well, pain, agony, and torment are all part of this torturous experience. One commentator put it this way, Jesus is saying the one who refuses to forgive, the Christian who harbors grudges, bitter feelings toward another, will be turned over to torturous thoughts, feelings of misery and agonizing unrest within. Well, who has not endured such feelings as this? You know, it's one of those horrible consequences of not forgiving people who offend us. It makes no difference who it is. It could be a parent. It could be in-laws. It could be somebody from your past or, or your childhood. It could be a former pastor, or a close friend who's turned against you. It could be some teacher who was unfair, somebody who cheated on you and did you wrong, a former spouse. How many divorced persons have been handed over to the torturers for this very reason? They did not forgive. And they began to live a life of torment, of anguish, of bitterness. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. That's what the parable is about. And when we forgive, we're releasing the poison of all that bitterness. We're not approving of the person's behavior, but we're letting go of those chains that keep us tethered to the one who hurt us. We get set free when we forgive. If there's someone who's hurt you and you've not forgiven them yet, Say it out loud and mean it. I forgive. And then put in that name for all he or she did to me. That's how we get set free from the prison that we're in. Now, we know that when the Holy Spirit fills our hearts that Satan can't dwell there. But that doesn't stop him from tempting us. So how do spiritual attacks look in our lives? There are two different types of spiritual attacks shown in the Bible, a physical attack and a mental attack. First of all, the physical. Remember how Satan attacked Job physically, his health, his crops, his animals, and his family? That's an example. 
and mentally. Satan's first mental attack was on Eve in the garden when he caused her to question God's command and and caused her to doubt him. Now, when does Satan attack us? Here, Here are some examples. When we start new things, think about a new marriage and the trials and tribulations you go through. Think about a new job, a new ministry, a new relationship, a new anything. That's where Satan is looking out to see if if we're in, number two, a weak spot when we are weak. You know, lions attack the weakest prey. And Satan is looking for for us when we are weak, when we're discouraged, when we're alone, when we're sick, when we're down and out. And number three, when we are strong. See, Satan is an equal opportunity attacker. He attacked Jesus and Peter in their strength, wanting to make them weak. Well, what method does he use? He gives you thoughts of doubt and insecurity and lies. He attacks your self-worth and identity. He asks you to use your imagination in a terrible way. See, the creative God owns our imagination. That's his territory. And Satan wants us just to imagine life as. And then he, he, the method he uses often these days is in societal norms. He makes us think it's okay and it's right because everybody else is doing it and they're thinking this and it must be okay. And then he, he uses a thought to develop thought patterns and habits and then a new way of life. See, that's the spiral. Can you see the downward spiral that starts with a thought that turns into a pattern? And before long, it is our new way of life. Take any lie Satan has ever told you and watch how the pattern has spiraled down from thought to concern to worry to ruminating to anxiety to fixation to depression and on down from there. There's good news, though. Let's see what Scripture says about the spiritual realm and who has dominion over it is found in Colossians 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he rescued us from darkness and he brought us into the light. He sets us free from sin with the blood he shed. He forgave us and he expects us to live in the light and forgive others. Well, how do we resist the devil? Well, let's see what James 4 verse 7 says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So how do we do what it says in James 4, verse 7? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we do it? Verse 7 tells us, first of all, submit to God in every area of your life. Number 2, in verse 8, it tells us come near to God in prayer and worship. And number 3 is also found in verse 8, confess your sins. Number 4, 
is found in verse 8 also. Purify your heart. See, it tells us to pray and worship and confess and purify. And then number five is to weep. Weep over your sin. And number six is to humble yourself before the Lord. And then he gives us the promise that we will have. He will lift you up. What do we do to prevent? You know, prevention is the best antidote. Because if we put into place a way to prevent an attack, we're ahead of the game. We're being proactive. Well, I'm giving you three prescriptions. Prescription number one is to wear the right clothes. <laughs> Wouldn't you know I'd think about that? It's armor. Armor. The whole armor of God. And we find that in Ephesians 6 verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. Put on every piece for this reason, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, when it's happening. And then after the battle, You'll be standing firm. Stand your ground. And then here are the clothes we're going to wear. We're going to put on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, we're going to put on the peace that comes from the good news so that we will be fully prepared. And in addition to that, we're going to hold up the shield of faith to stop. And here I want to insert quench. The fiery arrows of the devil. Put on, now we've got to get our hat, the salvation as your helmet, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then we're going to pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. That's it. Put on the right clothes, the armor. That's the way to make the devil flee. Let's focus what it says in that passage about the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. It's our faith that fortifies us and keeps us armed. Our faith becomes supernaturally empowered, and we keep it in the forefront in order to stop the fiery arrows. Let's get this, the context for that. The Greek word used there for is quench, and that meant to quench by dousing. Or to extinguish by drowning something in water. Well, before Roman soldiers went out to battle, they purposely soaked their shields in water until they were completely saturated. They knew that the enemy would be shooting fire-bearing arrows in their direction. And here's what those soldiers did. They wrapped the tips of their arrows with fabric that had been soaked in flammable fluid so it would burn with hot and angry flames. If a shield was dry, it was possible for it to be set on fire when struck. But a water-soaked shield would be extinguished by that shield. A water-soaked shield is going to extinguish the arrow. How does this apply to us as believers? One way to increase our faith is by reading, studying, and practicing the Word of God. 
as we regularly submit ourselves to the word of God, we soak our faith with the word, just as those soldiers soaked their shield in water. Our word-soaked faith prepares us to fight off Satan's fiery arrows and put our potentially damaging situations to rest. That's what it does. Yes, we need to be fully dressed every day. Here's prescription number two. Capture thoughts. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5 tells us we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Look at the three verbs. We are to demolish the arguments that come against the word of God. We are to take captive those thoughts and we are to make those thoughts obedient How do we do that? How do we take the thoughts captive? Well, it's prescription three. We're going to use a filter. That filter is found in Philippians 4, 8. It tells us the eight things we're going to be thinking about when we have a thought come into our mind and we are going to test the thought against the filter. We are going to see if if it meets the test and, and then it will tell us what to do with that thought. First of all, we're going to fix our thoughts on these things, whatever is, say it with me. I'm, I'm doing this uh, from the New Living Translation, verse, Philippians 8, 4, verse 8. What is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And when that thought comes in, We're going to measure it against those words, and we're going to ask ourselves, is it right? Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it pure and lovely and admirable? Is it excellent and worthy of praise? If not, we have a decision to make. If that word comes in and it's an ugly, mean, spirited uh, thought, it's an action that, uh, that Satan is trying to get us to take that is ungodly, then we're going to delete it. If a thought comes in, we're not sure. We're not sure what to do with that information because we just don't know. We don't know if it's true. Then we're going to edit that thought. We're going to to take that thought and we're going to capture it and then we're going to do something with it. We're going to discern. We're going to figure out if it's true and if it's right. And then we'll know what to do with it. We'll know if we're going to delete it or edit it or rewrite it or completely dismiss that thought. So do you see there are many ways to capture the thoughts that come in because if we don't get the thought as it begins to enter our mind, then Satan has hold of it. And that's when he is going to take it and and watch us go through the spiral of that thought. And it is going to appear, it's going to show up in how you think and how you feel and how you act and, and what you say. It will come out in the life. And so that's where at every turn we have our faith sword. We have our faith shield right in front of us. And we're blocking those darts. And we're saying, I can't let you in. I can't let you in. And this is a thought. I'm capturing your thought. I'm capturing this that you're trying to send to me, those fiery dots, darts. And I pray that uh, as we end this lesson, that you will begin to think of a period of time when you believed you were under a spiritual attack. And you'll write about that period. You'll think about it. And you'll discern how you handled it.
And then you make a decision on what to do daily to prevent the fiery darts of Satan from penetrating you. Father God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to forgive us and that you have asked us to forgive others so that we will not live with torment and anguish. And, and Father, we ask you that you would strengthen us and help us to have the resolve to every day hold up our shield of faith so that we can capture those arrows that the Satan and demonic spirits send our way and that we can discern what to do with those thoughts and help us, Lord, to concentrate on the eight beautiful things that you would ask us to think about, the things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. It is in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.